This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the healthcare handbook, subtitled A Clear and Concise Guide to the U.S. Healthcare System. The handbook was written by Dr. Elizabeth Askin and Dr. Nathan Moore. With me to discuss the volume is Dr. Moore. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Great. On background, a few comments. Uh, the healthcare handbook was first published in 2012. The work's second edition has just been or soon to be published. The book is what it says it is, a primer on our healthcare industry. At approximately 240 pages, the work covers a good deal of ground in five chapters. Healthcare systems and delivery, healthcare providers, insurance and economics research, pharma and medical devices, and policy and reform. The last chapter, policy and reform, provides moreover an overview of the Affordable Care Act. Again, with me to discuss the work is its co-author, Nathan Moore. Dr. Moore's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Uh, before we begin, Nathan, for clarity, uh, let me ask, is the second edition now out, or when will it be out? So it'll be out uh, hopefully next week. Uh, we're just tying together our loose ends. The books are printed, and they look good. We've got a completely revamped chapter on the ACA, and we have a new chapter as well on uh, healthcare IT and quality. Okay, great. I was actually going to ask you that question. We'll get to that. And also, too, um, this is, you know, these days I have to ask, it's also an ebook, is that right? Yeah, we've got paperback for 16 and an ebook for 8 bucks. Uh, those are both on Amazon, or you can visit healthcarehandbook.com. Okay, okay. Well, let's get to more of the substance. Um, you conceived this idea, as I read, while you and your colleague Elizabeth were in medical school. Um, so let me just ask you, what motivated you and Dr. Askin to undertake the effort? Well, it just kind of grew out of our own frustrations. Uh, our medical school, like most, did not do a very good job of teaching us uh, anything about healthcare policy, delivery, or economics. Uh, in fact, we had a one-hour lecture that was supposed to cover all of that, um, and that was pretty much it. And at the end of the hour, we still didn't know anything. Um, so we, both Elizabeth and I, independently were looking for resources to kind of teach ourselves, and everything we found was either like way too in-depth uh, and very boring, or it was biased or incorrect, um, or all three. So we wanted to help out our, kind of we wanted to create something for our classmates, and originally we were shooting for 10 pages. Uh, it turns out the healthcare system is way too complicated to explain it in 10 pages, um, so we ended up with what we have now. First edition, um, we were the, the school gave us a loan to, to publish it, and we were hoping to sell a couple hundred copies, and it did really well. I think just demonstrating that the, the need was out there because it turns out nobody understands the, the healthcare system. Uh, and then we got a grant for the second edition. That's how that one came around. Okay, let me ask you this, this question. Immediately occurred to me uh, in doing your research, particularly in your in context of the comment about not getting a good overview while in medical school. What were a few things that you found or you learned that were most surprising 
about uh, how healthcare is delivered in this country. I think probably the most surprising for me and for most medical students uh, is just how poor our healthcare system ranks. Um, you know, we in medical school we're exposed to a lot of the great things about medicine, but when you look at the statistics, the U.S. spends twice as much, and we're ranked. You know, I think the last WHO ranking, we were in the 30, 35 to 40 range of healthcare systems in the world. Um, so that was probably the most surprising thing to me uh, to begin with, is just how inefficient our system is. And then also learning more about um, the impact of delivery policy and economic policies on health outcomes. You know, in medical school, we spend hundreds, thousands of hours talking about every minute uh, clinical and pharmacologic thing and how it can affect the patient. But you step back and, and look and the fact that what kind of health insurance you have is just as if not more important more important to how your patient does than some of that other stuff. Um, and I was just surprised that we don't talk more about it. Okay. Um, that leads to my next question. All the reviews, and I, I found this to be generally the case as well in my review of the book, that it's written in a neutral manner. Is that, let me just ask, maybe is that still the case or the goal in the, in the second edition? Yeah, we wanted to write it in as unbiased a, a fashion as possible and keep it as fact-based as possible. And kind of what we would do, because we got a lot of people to review the book before we published it. And we knew we hit the sweet spot when one or two reviewers would say, this is obviously far too liberal, and one or two reviewers would say, this is obviously far too conservative. That's when we knew we had it just about right. Yeah, you just irritated everybody. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure that was the case in explaining the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, that's a it's a sensitive topic, and we really tried to keep it as fact-based as possible, which is some, some, sometimes hard to do. But um, I think and Elizabeth helmed up that chapter, and she did, a, I think, a really great job. Okay, okay. Uh, this question occurred to me as well, and that is, in context of researching and writing the book, and and your learning thereof. How has this affected um, how you actually practice medicine now? It's a good question. I mean, one thing that uh, definitely impacted it, both Elizabeth and I switched our specialty choices. Uh, we're both doing primary care now because of the stuff that we learned while writing the book in terms of the evidence for primary care, uh, improving health outcomes for the largest population for the least amount of cost and the big imbalance with primary care in the U.S., so we both actually affected both of us personally. And then I think I'm also just a little bit more cognizant of system factors when I take care of patients, more likely to ask them simple things like whether or not they can afford their medicines um, and trying to really understand the barriers to care, I think, a little bit more than, than most of my colleagues. Uh, that, that's interesting. Actually, uh, I don't know if you're practicing. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with accountable care organizations, and one of the Right. 33 quality measures for ACOs is exactly that. Did you review with your patient um, their uh, uh, scripts and their ability to afford uh, maintaining their uh, regimen, pharmaceutical regimen? Um, I guess the, the flip side of this question is, how is this learning then, um, uh, and you answered the question in part, but let me push further. Other ways this learning has influenced your practice? Well, I think that I'm a little bit more aware of the changes in the healthcare system and the fact that we're getting away from 
fee for service, do as many procedures and tests as you can to make a living. And we're moving into a, a world where, and I think it's better uh, that we get paid based on quality and outcomes. And more isn't always the right thing to do. Right. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm certainly maybe a little bit more aware of these trends and I'm trying to integrate them into my daily clinical practice. I'm focused more on quality and outcomes and, and guidelines. And also when I go out and finish residency and look for a job, I'm, I'm certainly going to want to work for a place that emphasizes things like continuity of care, medical records, um, more ac- accepting of non-physician providers, and um, in- integrating technology, I think, which can be very variable depending on, on where you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you did touch upon this with that statement. So the question is, based on your learning from researching and writing the book, what would you say are top of mind for you relative to how the system or healthcare can be improved? You did. I thought it was interesting you just mentioned using or in- integrating more say, social service supports or, let's just say, um, care that's not particularly or necessarily medical in nature. Yeah. I, that's that's certainly one of them. Uh, there's a nice case study of, I believe it's called the Commonwealth Care Alliance in Boston, where they, uh, it was a geriatrician who started his own insurance company so that basically he could control the purse strings for his patients. He invested almost all of it into home-based care, nurse practitioners, social workers, and demonstrated some pretty remarkable medical and cost savings. Um, so the patients were healthier and they were spending a lot less on them. And that was investments in what would traditionally be considered non-medical, but at least to improvements in their medical being. Um, so I think things like that are certainly going to be focused on more in the future. In terms of other ways that uh, things can be improved, if I could wave my wand and change one thing, probably making medical records available um, more widely and integrating them would be really nice. You know, I'm at a major academic institution at WashU. There's another Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, there's another one a mile and a half from our uh, hospital, St. Louis University. Somebody at my hospital could have a major three-vessel bypass on Friday or, or leave on Friday. Something happens to them. They're admitted to St. Louis University the next day. It'll probably take three to four days before the folks over there can find out what happened at our hospital and vice versa. And, uh, you know, and that would be by fax, and probably most of the important stuff wouldn't even make it into the fax. You know, being that it's the year 2014, that's that's just kind of crazy. Yeah, it begs the whole Um, health information exchange issue, the HIE issue. Yeah. Let let me ask, um, so a lot of the reviews uh, note uh, the book being picked up or used um, in graduate and medical school education. That begs the question about the reaction. What's your understanding of how useful the book has been, say, um, um, within uh, medical schools, particularly as it relates to the, the comment you made earlier about uh, the one-hour lecture you got? Yeah, we've, you know, maybe it's just because people don't want to hurt my feelings, but the reviews have been generally positive. There's about 60 schools using the book, and part of the cool thing is it's being used by medical schools as well as nursing schools and PT and business schools. And um, that's that's pretty exciting for us to see because all sorts of professions in the healthcare field deal with the same stuff. Um, 
I did have one medical student tell me he took a year off of medical school to get an MPH because he couldn't understand the healthcare system. And had he had our book, he wouldn't have had to do that. So that was a pretty high compliment. Um, different schools are using it differently, but the feedback that we've gotten is that, you know, our goal with Elizabeth and I was to make the material as painless as possible. And people seem to appreciate that and, and think it was that we did a decent job. Okay. Okay. And let's let's spend a minute or two or a few minutes at least on the substance. Again, the book is now I'm assuming per your comment expanded to seven chapters. Is that correct from the original four? Will be uh six chapters, but it's the same length. So still at uh, two hundred and fifty six pages. Okay. The chapter I was particularly interested in is the one uh, healthcare systems and delivery. Can you just give a give me an overview or to what extent is that chapter evolved or changed in the second edition? Yeah, so uh, the systems and delivery chapter, we wanted to give the reader kind of an overview of where healthcare happens. So different types of hospitals, different types of clinics, um, and the major issues focusing or that that are uh, going on there. Um, that chapter didn't change. That was probably one of the chapters that changed the least between the first and second editions. But we've got new sections on uh, the nursing shortage, uh, as well as updated sections on primary care shortage and the physician shortage uh, with some interesting new data, um, and as well as a, a little bit more about accountable care organizations and how they've worked in their early iterations. Great, great. And the policy and reform chapter, again, is an overview of, of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, do you pick up other subjects now in that revised chapter? Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We've got sections in there, especially on the, the Massachusetts Health Reform or Romney Care, because mm -hmm. I think, you know, if, if the what the rest of the country is doing now is based on what they did, it's pretty instructive yeah. to see what's happened. Um, and we've got sections in there about the Oregon Medicaid experiment, the basics of Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP, as well as some of the alternate proposed reform ideas other than the Affordable Care Act. Okay, okay. And there are occasions in the volume where you're somewhat critical um, of how care is delivered. And per your earlier comment, you you do mention uh, over-treatment, um, mm. at least in one occasion. What other um, sort of areas are you where you're, let's just say, a little more uh, suspect about how care is delivered? Well, I, I think the evidence is pretty clear that the U.S. has a, probably the most fragmented care system in the world and we pay quite a high price for duplication of tests and things falling through the cracks and people getting uh, high levels of care when they could have been treated appropriately beforehand. There's also huge disparities in the U.S. in medical care by race, by income, and by geography. I mean, 35% of hospital admissions in Miami are preventable, whereas only 15% in Sarasota, which is, you know, just an hour and a half or so away. Um, there was a the life expectancy, you know, just for example, in, in St. Louis where I live, the life expectancy gap between two neighborhoods, two zip codes uh, that are probably 15 minutes apart by car is 18 years. Um, and that's not even the worst. You know, New Orleans has worse than that. So there are, there are big disparities in the U.S. They're not getting much better. We have a highly fragmented system that rewards doing more rather than doing what's needed. 
Right. Um, I should say, per your comment, D.C. supposedly, where I live, has the highest uh, disparity by race uh, as it relates to uh, lifespan. So yeah. um, you're right, it can vary greatly um, within just a small region. Yeah, and the U.S. in general has had less of an emphasis on preventive care and primary care compared to other countries. Absolutely. which I think may be changing a little bit. And this gets to your point about physician shortages, and there's been much written lately about the primary care PCP shortage um, as well. You're, um, you're a unique um, uh, medical stu school student in that very few medical school graduates now go into primary care. I'm assuming that was your experience uh, after you finished. Yeah, I think only four in my class of 120 were going into primary care. And would you say that this book might be helpful in emphasizing the importance of primary care? I think so. You know, we didn't get into writing the book to talk about how great primary care was. Um, that just kind of came out of our, our literature review. But I think we aren't exposed much in medical school to this kind of research. Um, and I think it's instructive for people to at least know the, what what the evidence is out there, and it's not necessarily that every doctor has to become a primary care physician. I don't think that's the case, but I think the system can be modified in, in ways to ensure that effective primary care and care coordination is in place uh, to benefit the patients. I think the, the patient-centered medical home is one model. Accountable care organization is another model. It's unclear what, if any, effect those are going to have. It'll be a little while. Um, but it seems like people are at least trying. Yes, absolutely. There are a lot of experimentation going on, ACOs, PCMHs, as you mentioned. What's uh, maybe uh, time for one last? What's You did note the use of the book in graduate schools and various types of schools, um, school program or educational programs. What's your general sense of the public's reaction or uptake of the volume? It's been it's been pretty good. You know, we, we didn't expect it to get much public traction, but people seem to like it again because it's hard. The healthcare system is really complicated. Um, it's hard to find a clear explanation of it, especially the thing that really was nice for Elizabeth and I. We actually, a few um, patients reached out to us and said, you know, I, I never really thought about it this way, but if you have chronic disease, that's pretty much a full-time job. And you spend a ton of time in clinics and hospitals and nursing homes and navigating that system is really difficult. So we really appreciated a, a few patients emailed us and said, you know, I found this book useful in coordinating my own medical care. Um, that was cool. Right, yes, yes, good point, thank you. Um, maybe just lastly then, so you're just finishing the second edition. With luck, the book will enjoy wider readership distribution, uh, use in medical schools. Any other hopes or expectations for this work? We're we're trying to put together some online curriculum videos and that kind of stuff. Um, I really, maybe it's too lofty of a hope, but I'd like to crack the political sphere and maybe get this out to some of the decision makers. Um, there's this new kind of maybe it's not new, but I've recently heard of an evidence-based policy. Sure. And no matter where you lie on the ideological spectrum, I think incorporating some evidence into our healthcare policy making would wouldn't hurt. Um, I think there's a few things that people from both sides could agree upon to make things better for patients and providers. 
um, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, that's the expectation, I'm sure, you know, for Corey, the Patient Centered Outcome Research Institute, right, that we, yeah. um, we drive evidence, and that evidence should at least, we hope, inform policy, better policy decision-making. Let's hope. <laughs> Let's hope. Well, with that, uh, Nathan, we're very appreciative for your time. We're at our 20-minute uh, time boundary. So I do congratulate you for the original effort, now the second edition. Um, congratulations to you and as well to your colleague, Elizabeth. And we'll look forward to the second edition. Thank you very much. Yeah, this was great. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.